Hey there, everyone. I'm Vicki Howell, and this is the Craftish Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Penguin Random House Audio, offering hands-free inspiration while you're making your next handmade thing. So while you're building that shelf or painting that portrait or designing that dress or sculpting that bowl or doing whatever it is that you do to fill that creative well or make that creative life, why not listen to a great book? So Penguin Random House Audio has got makers back. They have created a curated section just for us crafters, and you can find that at tryaudiobooks.com crafter. While you're there, you can check out a multitude of titles, including one that they're offering for my listeners for free called Ivy and Inky the Butterfly by Johanna Bosford. And this one is a magical tale that is really perfect for all ages. So it's also a great listen if you're in the car picking up the kids from school or, or whatever. It's just a really nice, nice book. So go ahead and go to tryaudios.com crafter to download it and check out a bunch of other great titles. This week on the show is vintage dress pattern and fabric designer and author of several books, including the forthcoming Gertie Sews Jiffy Dresses, a modern guide to stitch and wear vintage patterns you can make in a day. I've followed Gretchen since she first started her original Gertie's blog for better sewing. I think that was about a decade ago, but have since become an even larger fan since delving into making one of her vintage party dresses for myself. We, a few months ago, had a 40th birthday party for my husband that was Back to the Future themed, and we asked everyone to come dressed for for the 1950s prom theme from the movie, which was Enchantment Under the Sea, which was just a blast, but it was also a great excuse for me to learn how to make one of Gertie's dresses. So I did that, and during our conversation, we talk a little bit about that experience, but we also talk about her evolution of personal style and how that affected the look of her brand, how, if at all, um, historical accuracy is important to her when she's designing her vintage style pieces, and how she continues to build her business. I found Gretchen to be a really smart businesswoman with a creative mind, but also just a gal that seems fun to pal around with. So I'm really excited for us to go and hang out with her now. Gretchen Hurst, thank you so much for being on Craftish. First of all, do you prefer Gretchen or Gertie in in conversation? Oh my gosh, that's a hard question. Um, you, you can call can me I Gertie. Just call you G? It's totally fine. Um, Gertie is like my internet name that I've been using for a long time, but Gretchen is my real name. So I have like a split personality and I totally answer to both. Can I just call you G? I'm just keeping at that. <laughs> it's just a thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm very happy to have both sides of you here. I, you know, I've been admiring you for, and really enjoying your work for, gosh, at least ten years. I, I feel like all of us who have worked in, you know, sort of the overarch, arching, crafty realm, um, have sort of danced around in the same circles. Um, uh, you know, especially because blogging was very new um, when we actually didn't even exist when I started out. And um, we've all kind of watched each other, but our paths don't really cross. So it's so nice to actually put a voice to a virtual face. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. And I've been aware of you for like, yeah, probably 10 years now. So it's so nice to actually talk to you. Well, I want to dive right in and talk about the evolution of your style. So when your, you know, your earlier work came out and when you started your blog, 
you had kind of like a punk rock angle and you've slowly really sort of bloomed into a beautifully branded and also yeah. just spot on pinup type style. And I wanted to know if you would share a little bit of that evolution. Do you, were you yeah. a big fan of pinups as a young girl? Were you into rockabilly or punk style? Yeah. Well, thank you for bringing that up because that is like, that's been on my mind a lot lately and sort of like how I've evolved over the past decade. Um, so as a little girl, I would say I always loved vintage style, but movies like Annie or Pretty Woman or Dirty Dancing, like sort of like faux vintage almost. Um, and I just, there was something I really connected to about that sort of glamorous style. And, um, in my 20s. We should so stop and say, for Annie, you were, I'm <laughs> guessing that you were talking about Bernadette Peters' character in the movie and not actually Annie. Well, I love the whole thing, I gotta say, but yeah, Miss Hannigan was like, I mean, the epitome of glamour to me. I was like, the whole like bathtub gin and like dripping oh in. Oh my gosh, dripping oh, in diamonds and pearls. And pearls and <laughs> yes. But she's just dripping in little girls. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. yeah. So you so just was, liked, you liked the essence of how fashion really illustrated the time period it was in. Whereas now we're, we're much more into flexing and sort of using fashion to express our own personal style, whether than it being a commentary on where we are as a society. Oh, wow. That's advanced. Um, yeah. <laughs> too much too soon. <laughs> that sounds really smart. And I agree. <laughs> no, I don't know. I just think that I, but I was always just really attracted to displays of femininity. Like even as a little girl, I was just like, I would look at Miss Hannigan or Julia Roberts in Pretty Woman and be like, I want to be that type of woman, you know, like that to me was sort of the attraction and yeah. that sort of it was sort of like an effortless glamour. Um, so I think I've always loved that idea. Um, I did not know how to achieve it as a really awkward <laughs> young girl. Um, so I think like the evolution that you're talking about, like it started probably in my 20s, when I really started to think, and by the way, I had a whole career before this, like, I was a children's book editor, um, and living in New York, uh, and San Diego. And so I had like my first office job in my 20s. And I was like, for the first time, like, could kind of dress how I wanted, like as a woman and wanted to be like, that, you know, was trying to achieve that sort of glamour and vintage just spoke to me always. And so I, I started to like, so you saw your job as an editor, not necessarily as a, I mean, probably as an, as an opportunity in publishing, but also as an opportunity to express yourself fashion wise. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was like, you know, I'm like, a woman in my yeah. 20s working and publishing and, you know, near Rockefeller <laughs> Center. And it was like, <laughs> I must get my hands on some gray wool now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I need like a, a magenta pencil skirt stat, you know, like that was sort of my approach to it. At and that point, were you at the level of seamstress where you could make that happen stat? Oh God, no, no. Um, I, so I learned to sew as um, a young girl, like probably eight years old, I first learned how to sew. But um, the style of sewing in my house was very like crafty, um, 
like, you know, potholders and, um, like the only garment sewing project I did as a kid was a pair of hammer pants and a matching vest in blue seersucker, which was such a fashion disaster. Um, so like in my twenties, when I was wanting to achieve this, I kind of, I had to come back to sewing and teach myself how to make clothing, like how to do fashion apparel sewing. So does that mean that, okay, let's stop. There's a lot to absorb there. Are you, so you were crafty, as you said, but were you as a child, as many of us were, you know, making clothes for dolls or were you, was there always an interest in sewing because sewing and fashion don't necessarily, the passion for them don't always go hand in hand? Right. Um, I, so sewing was just always kind of around when I was a kid. My mom um, made her Halloween costumes. Um, She's like an amazing quilter now. Um, But it was just something that like, I mean, a lot of people will tell me now that they're like scared of their sewing machine. You know, I'm sure you've heard that sort of thing before. And I just never had that because it was just a normal thing to have in the house for me. Um, So... Yeah, I did not learn fashion sewing. And I really taught myself, you know, when I came back to it. Um, I, you know, I did take some classes like at FIT and stuff like that. But I, you know, when I came back to it, and when I started my blog, I was really like, learning and teaching myself how to make clothing. So when you started the blog, would that have been around 2008, maybe? Yes. Were you still working in publishing? Was this sort of a side project for you? Or was there something that happened that just gave you a complete shift right away? So, well, what happened was I was laid off. And um, I was working at Simon & Schuster at the time. And um, there was publishing was just like going through a lot of changes and job loss and all of that. So um, I was laid off. And I had this like six month period of unemployment that was in New York. Yeah. (laughs) So it, that was pivotal to me because at first I was, I mean, there were no jobs in publishing. It was crazy. So I was applying to everything I could, but on the other hand, I was like, oh, this is amazing. I'm just going to be unemployed and sew all day. You know what I mean? Because that's what I wanted to do anyway. So I was right. like, okay, I'll, I'll do what I need to do to find a new job. But, you know, I got some time on my hands here. So I'm just going to sew all the time and like build this dream wardrobe that I've been thinking of. And so I started to do that. And like newsflash, like staying home alone, being unemployed, sewing all day is like not that exciting or like or profitable (laughs) (laughs) it doesn't like make you feel great I mean I think that's one thing that a lot of us like have in common about crafting is like we discover like the solitude can be like a really beautiful thing or it can be sort of detrimental Um, and at that time for me it was detrimental so that's when the blog idea came to me sort of like honestly it was on a whim like I was just like "Hmm, I have this idea I'm gonna go I've heard of blog spot before. (laughs) Like I'm going to go sign up for an account. And I just kind of like within 10 minutes was like up and running. And it was just sort of this, like, just this need to connect at a time that felt very isolated to me. Did your background in publishing, do you think really help you launch something that was essentially writing based? Yeah, definitely. I mean, well, I was used to at that point, um, 
you know, writing all sorts of copy, editorial copy, marketing copy. And, um, I think I had like a lot of people who worked in publishing, I'd always wanted to be a writer myself. So it was, I didn't realize I also had that need, not just to talk about sewing, but also to be writing every day. Um, it just, and when I started the blog, I did, I blogged every single day. Can you imagine that now? I cannot even like connect to that person who had the energy and time to do that. Anymore. But, but, and I'm going to say our defense, because I'm going to defend the fact that I can't imagine that anymore. At the time, we weren't also having to keep up with, you know, styling Instagram shots, creating at different Pinterest images, you know, doing live videos, like there wasn't such an extraordinary amount of content that needed to be created around it. So you really were just on your blog, and maybe you posted on, you know, posted a link on MySpace or just copy and pasted the same blog within that. That's true. It was a lot more manageable than I felt like. It was definitely a different time. Yeah. Yeah. For better or worse, really. Um, So how did... So we were, we started talking about your style. At what point, you always, you always were vintage sewing, but there was a, there was a slow evolution into a very sort of distinct pinup style. Is that something that you just found through, through your journey that that was just how your voice resonated most? Or was there something more behind that? Yes, there's been a huge evolution in my personal style over the past 10 years. And like the way I see it is that I'm now finally achieving what I always wanted to achieve. Mm-hmm. So it's been like I had this vision 10 years ago, but because I was new to this or I was young, um, I was not able to achieve the vision that I saw for myself. And it's only been, I have to say, like in the past year that I am like, creating new content. And I'm like, yes, this is what I meant to do from the start, which is an amazing feeling. Is that right? (laughs) Only the past year? How is that possible? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, but you were doing the um, Good Housekeeper videos more than a year ago, right? Yes, that's true. That's true. But I, to me still, and I'm like, really, I'm not saying I'm not proud of the work that I did. But when I look at it now, I can see that it wasn't quite what I wanted to be. As far as just sort of personal branding? Yeah. And you see the finished, okay, so you have a finished product in your mind and, and it's like, so you envision it so that's exactly what you want and you have this idea of what you're going to achieve and then you make that thing and it doesn't quite match up to that vision. For me, there was always that disconnect, even with the good housekeeping stuff, which, like I said, very proud of. And I like I love those videos and they've brought a ton of people into um, sort of what I do and into sewing in general. So I'm not saying I'm not proud of them, but I still look back and there was at that time, there was still that disconnect for me. So you've created now a new blog. That is an extension of the old blog. blog. So one was blog for better sewing, and now you have blog by Gertie. Are they sisters? Does one take over the other? Is there a purpose in having two separate? Yeah, I mean, that's a, yeah. Okay, so the initial blog, um, like I said, I for a while I blogged every day on that site, and it was very personal, and I have sort of... 
I've stopped being quite, I don't have the need to share my personal life like I did when I first started. So that's been a bit of a shift for me. So I look back at that original blog and it's sort of like my younger self in a way. And again, I'm still very proud of it. And I cannot believe all the content I created over the years that I wrote that blog. But for me, um, it was this sort of shift in the past couple years of feeling like I didn't, like I said, I didn't feel the need to have this like personal journal on the internet anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Then at the same time, there was also that shift. People kind of moved away from blogs and moved to Instagram and other types of social media. And I had a really weird experience of that because I had like a lot of turmoil in my personal life around that time. And I just sort of naturally shifted away from blogging just sort of as like a self-protective thing, Mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. And so in my mind, there was all this guilt associated with it, like guilt you feel of not creating that content anymore. And I had the weirdest feeling of thinking that it was just me doing that. And then I came like, and I sort of came back and like, felt like I relaunched a little bit on Instagram. And I was like, oh, everyone did that. Like everyone kind of moved from their blogs and everyone's now creating content on Instagram. Don't you think that that is just sort of like... Uh, is just a disservice that we as women in general do the feeling of guilt if we're not doing the level of whatever it is that we've decided should be done yes totally it is i mean it's that sort of like apologetic like i'm sorry i'm not filling this certain need for other people anymore approach to life right and um i mean looking back on it now like it bothered me every day and i just i hate that i put myself through those feelings of guilt when it wasn't like it wasn't just me like we were all experiencing shifts in the way we expressed ourselves yeah and and still are incidentally because things ebb and flow blogging is now becoming again you know important at least from a marketing standpoint it goes back and forth and it just depends on the message so you know in one way it's it's so hard to keep up in another way I always personally at least feel extraordinarily grateful to be doing what I'm doing at this period of time when there's we can all just kind of throw throw it out there and see what works it sort of feels like we're on this like pioneering team together of figuring it out yeah. Uh, so you call yourself a home seamstress instead of a dress pattern designer. At least that's what it says on in your bio. Is there is there a reason that you choose that moniker? Yeah. Well, at this point, I would say I think I'm both. Um, I've always said home seamstress because I just love sewing, and I don't. I don't come at this from like a fashion design viewpoint. Like a lot of people ask me, especially people who don't sew and they see, you know, what I wear, they want to be able to buy the dresses. You know what I mean? Like, how do I buy that dress? Where Mm -hmm. do I go for other people to buy the finished product? It's not um, profitable. (laughs) Again, (laughs) when you make things to sell, when you make something that takes a lot of time, I know. You can't and charge what it would cost for an hour, hourly Exactly. Wage. And I've had some really funny conversations, I have to say, like, especially with men who try to, like, mansplain to me how I need to be selling my dresses rather than making sewing patterns because it's sort of 
making sewing patterns, people cannot fathom how that would be a profitable career. But oh, if you sell your dresses, and you know, it's like, yeah, I actually, you're actually suggesting that I become a seamstress, which is not a profitable career. And um, then you lean in and you say, let me explain <laughs> passive streams of income to you. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. And so, the wonderment of digital downloads. And I actually, I you know, I think it's actually a travesty how like poorly paid professional seamstresses are. You know, I think that's part of what I'm saying here is like, it's it's a like disaster how like little we value that skill professionally. Right, which sort of balances on the precipice of you know quote unquote women's work not being valued and then also where we are with fast fast fashion right now so that you can actually buy yeah you know a dress that looks vintage for 39.99 on Amazon now oh yeah exactly and exactly. i know this because <laughs> i recently uh, we recently had a 40th birthday party for my husband, who's a huge, uh, huge, huge Back to the Future fan. And we rented out a theater and screened the movie, but we asked that everybody come dress like they were going to Enchantment Under the Sea prom from that movie. Um, that's an amazing party, by and the way. And it was good yeah. stuff. It was good stuff. Um, <laughs> I, so a lot of people said that they just ordered, like, I, I saw it, you could like twenty nine ninety nine on Amazon. Um, yep. And it was really and you could, and there was actually some really cute options, but I don't know how they were able to do it. I, of course, <laughs> what do you do? <laughs> I took that as the opportunity to make my first Dirty dress. Oh, is this the Lamore <laughs> dress that I saw on Instagram? It is. Yes. I'm going to tell you that I don't have a good relationship with things fitting. Um, <laughs> I may or may not have had to call in a tailor at the 11th hour. Oh, no. Um, but it worked, and it's beautiful, and I loved it, and it was perfect. But, you know, that's what I do. Like, whenever there's something that has to be done, that's when I decide I'm going to learn a new skill. Um, yeah. Uh, of course. But my point is, is that took hours and hours, you know, you have to do like the muslin fitting and then boning is a whole other animal that I barely yeah. wrestled together. And, you know, yeah. so to, to obviously, if you're more skilled, it take the out, it takes less hours, but there's just no possible way that you could sell a dress like that for less than $500. Yeah, it's so true. That is so true. And that still wouldn't be livable. That's still not a livable wage because what you're going to make a dress every three days, maybe that's right. Not, especially living in New York. It just doesn't, it doesn't make sense. And it's not where we're at right now. That's not right. where the value is placed in our society right now, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely not. And you know, I've always said like, I never, I've never sewn to save money. Like, I think that's a lot, that's a misconception too, is that people think they can make a wardrobe inexpensively if they learn to sew and compared to what you're seeing at like H&M prices, I mean, yeah. you can't. It I mean, used to be true when there was fabric stores in every mall and a lot of more accessibility. And then there weren't, I was just having this conversation with somebody last week about where did, where did we shop? Because, you know, we couldn't afford Contempo Casuals, which is what I remember when I was a kid. <laughs> totally, me too. I can't remember. And it was before... You know, bigger lines had sub lines at places like Target, and there were pop-up shops at other sort of affordable places. I have no recollection of where I would have bought my clothes. But at, right. that, 
But at that time, and especially when I was little, little, my mom made all our clothes, and it was actually more affordable. But that has long since gone away since you could go to, you know, Forever 21 and get an entire suit for $21.99. Right, right, exactly, exactly. So, it, yeah, it's just shifted so much. And if you have, like, champagne taste and fabric like I do, you're definitely not saving money. So where are you where are you sourcing your fabric or where do you rather, where do you tell people to get, and we'll talk about your lines in a second, but get some of these like amazing sort of silks and satins that you work with because it's, it's kind of, it's so much harder to find. You can't just walk into a fabric store anymore and find the perfect. It took me a long time to find this like stretchy, like aquamarine, you know, taffeta that I wanted. Right. Yeah, I know. That's another problem. But um, I'm lucky. I live in Beacon, New York, which is in the Hudson Valley area. So and we have a train that goes direct to Grand Central. So I am like, really, I can go to the garment district in New York City. Yeah, anyway. That changes everything. Yeah. So I'm really lucky in that respect. Um, because I mean, the, the scope of what you can get there is like just top quality. And, um, I do most of my sourcing, um, at B and J fabrics and they, I've, you know, partnered with them on my books over the years. They provide the fabric for those. And it's my favorite place in the garment district. They're just amazing. Um, not cheap, but like it's a curated selection of mm -hmm. the most beautiful apparel fabrics in the world. So, I mean, having that, you know, sort of in easy traveling distance to where I live is amazing. Does the dress design inspire the fabric or the fabric inspire the design? Um, it can go either way. Um, I would say, you know, from my line with, with charm now, which is, you know, the little more dress, that's what you sewed from. I would say the design always comes first. And then um, I take, several trips into B&J to source things and I get really inspired by what's available there but for me like the for a pattern the the gar like the lines of the garment always come first learning to design a dress is one thing but learning how to create and grade patterns is a very specific and technical skill how did you evolve from the beginning when you were you know, telling people to cut out rectangles and then gather and that to, to moving to full on fitted bodices. Yeah. And then, it, yeah. and then be able to translate that into a pattern with darts. Right. How did that, how was that skill attained over the years? So when I first started and when I wrote my first book, I was working with vintage patterns pretty much exclusively, but sort of reworking them um, because, you know, the illustrations on the envelopes are gorgeous, but they don't really reflect always how they look on like a modern body. So I would... The waistlines back then, honestly. Yeah. And I mean, it has a lot to do with foundation garments and also just people being smaller, you know, so like we've, we've just, you know, our proportions are different now. Um, so I was reworking things like from vintage patterns, you know, for modern body types, but also like modern style preferences sometimes too. So when I first started, like I had those vintage patterns as my base, 
But I realized pretty quickly, like I taught myself a lot about pattern making from vintage pattern making books, but I knew that I needed like I needed to learn more and to be more professional in my approach. So I took some pattern making classes at the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York, um, which is an amazing resource. And then I started working with graders. So I draft everything by hand, sort of, you know, by scratch. I also learned how to drape patterns so I can drape directly on a dress form and make a pattern from that. Um, and then I have people who digitize those paper patterns that I make um, and like fix them for me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because like, it's amazing too what people can do with CAD software, you know, mm. they can, you know, down to like... <clears throat> Uh, just like the tiniest little fraction of an inch, you know, they can get those seams to match. I can't do that by hand. Um, and, you know, getting notches to match and all that. So like, you know, I, I, I have a whole team of freelancers that I work with now. And, um, you know, the grader and digitizer is, you know, one of the most important roles. And I think as a businesswoman, as an entrepreneur, it's really important that you outsource the things that aren't going to outwardly build your brand, better your business, make you more money. Yes. You, you are the face of your brand. It's your time is much better spent on camera or writing books or on Instagram modeling. Right. Yeah. It's, it's not going to help your brand for you to be learning CAD. Oh, exactly. Exactly. And I'm actually going through a bit of a shift with that now where I'm working with a grader who's really encouraging me to let her do the pattern making work. Mm -hmm. Um, and that is a huge, like I have to really wrap my brain it's around. Hard, I know. And because for me, I've spent 10 years now working with things on paper in muslin. I make them like I, and I spend sometimes months it's, and it is a, it's not the best use of my time is what I'm getting at. Um, trying to get the pattern exactly where I want it, then sending it to a grader, then having them digitize and fix it and, and grade it. And so I'm just now starting to work with um, a grader slash pattern maker that I really trust who can work from a sketch of mine and send me the drafted pattern. And this idea just like blows my mind. And it, it makes me feel a little bit anxious because it takes away that sort of like tactile fiddling around for months that I'm used to. And have gotten into sort of a comfort zone with, and it's pushing me to the next level of being able to create more and create better. And it's really scary. <laughs> but exciting. Yeah. It's the super scary things are often no. the best things as an entrepreneur. I know. I know. And I, you know, I think what, you know, what you were saying about getting away from the things that aren't totally valuable to you and also getting back to like the guilt, the woman guilt, yeah. like, um, Oh, if I don't, if I don't draw this by hand on paper, I'm not really designing it. Like, I don't know where that comes from, but right. um, that's an idea that I have to move past because this, this new way of working could totally like revolutionize what I'm doing with charm patterns, which is my main focus right now. Yeah. And I mean, if you think about, I mean, Stella McCartney or Gwen Stefani, anybody who has a, you know, a line, they're not, they're not grading the patterns themselves. They're not sewing, but they're, are designing them like right 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 exactly I think exactly. that it's that it's an interesting thing you know in the knitting world that I'm in and in the sewing world that you're in versus the act the fashion world now you straddle both but it's the 
women's work side, the seamstress side, that probably instills more guilt than the fashion side, which would, the the whole mentality, the value is so much more elevated in that mm-hmm. industry, whether it's often self-aggrandized, but um, that there there wouldn't be the, the consideration or the guilt. Oh, totally. If you totally. were producing dresses that were then going down a runway and then people were buying them versus how... You know, we as DIYers think that we have to right. literally DIY everything. <laughs> have to literally, and that's not. And but yeah. as business wo- women, that is not advisable. No, it's definitely not. It's definitely not. And you're right; it's totally a different mentality. And you know, I taught in a fashion department for a while, which was kind of wild. And that, I mean, the students there, they don't even understand. They want to be fashion designers. They don't even understand why they need to learn to sew. So, like, right. it's a totally different world. How important is the historical accuracy of garments to you when you're designing? And what makes me ask this is the is your use um, your usage of steel boning? Yeah, um, so it's pretty important to me. Um, I I don't know. I wouldn't say I'm like a total purist, um, but I try to keep things as authentic as possible. Um, steel boning, I just have like an obsession with, um, I, cause ever since I started working with it, it's just, I mean, I've had some dresses that like anthropology, that sort of brand stuff and, you know, sort of faux retro faux vintage look and that had plastic boning in them. And I was like amazed by how bad the quality was of it. I mean, I've had dresses where the boning like works its way out of like the neckline and stabs you in the boob, you know, like that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, and I, so I learned a lot from like corset makers and, um, just people who make sort of couture dresses, they don't use plastic boning because it like, it bends and buckles and it does it like, it doesn't, um, go back to its original shape like steel boning does. And, um, like we can talk about, about your relationship with steel boning because I want to hear what your <laughs> experience was like. Oh, but- I don't have any. I have, I have, I tapped out. I should have done that. That was, it was, that was probably, I think if I had done that differently, I would have had a easier time with the bodice. I just, cause it was more accessible for where I am. I live in Austin, Texas, and we have very few, you know, uh, resources for real sewing. Like we have yeah. Joanne's yeah. and then we have some quilt quilter base. So just cotton, you know, yeah. Um, yeah. and that's really it. It's really, it's really an issue. But, and I was under this time self-imposed, you know, <laughs> deadline. So yeah. I actually got the kind yeah. that it's plastic, but it's not, it's, it's like strips. Regaline. And I, I know it's- sewed it straight on to the yeah. lining piece. Yeah. And that made joining the lining to, this is going to put people to sleep. I'm so sorry, listeners, but that made joining the lining piece to my front bodice piece a nightmare because it was because it was the seam allowances were off, but also the boning was naturally curved the opposite way because of the side that I put it on and the way that the lining is. And so it was, I had to battle. It was like working with like an octopus. I had to battle it the whole time. And I I think that how you design the pattern, you put the boning in after all of that is assembled. And that makes a lot more sense. Right. Yeah. And yeah. So, so you wouldn't have to deal with the, the boning in the seam allowances. Well, when you're working with steel, 
I will. I will set up a date with, your with the steel boning and okay. <laughs> try again. I, I know I'm a big believer in it. I know it's not easy to source, and even for me, like I either have to order it online or you know take a whole day to go into the city to get that. So it's not like even for someone who lives in the New York City area, it's not like I just I'm not like running down the block to to pick it up. So it is a specialty material, and I understand that like it you have to work a little bit to obtain it and also to learn to use it. But I just, I'm a big believer in it because I think it just elevates the quality of your, your finished product so much. All right. I'll try it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and actually I created a, an online class for the Lamore dress for that reason, because people are really scared of steel boning. And I wanted to show the whole process of making the Lamore dress and the way the materials I use and the way I use them. Um, just because I feel like there's not a lot of access to that information anymore. Yeah, it's funny. I actually hired a, um, I wanted to use this opportunity for this dress because I've been sewing since I was, you know, maybe like eight, but straight lines mostly, like not really garments, garments, you know, kids clothes and that kind of thing. And I wanted to use this as an opportunity to actually make things that fit because I'm very short torsoed, which means I've got zero waist on like ribs and then long legs, you know, and I, so, and I have, you know, shortened the shoulders, all this stuff. And I really wanted to make something that fits. So I was using, so I actually hired this uh, woman who used to own um, Stitch Lab out here, who I know that you've been down there, Leslie Bunnell. Yeah. Um, she speaks very highly of you, by the way. I She now does private lessons. And I said, can I come in and can we just make, just get started on this together? And I, this is how I approached it. I had penciled in like, you know, 10 hours to make this dress and learn how to do it. Right. right. <laughs> and so I did a couple of lessons with her and it was just, you know, clearly penciling in learning how to do all, all my point being like steel boning, I think was a, a step past where I was like emotionally ready to go at that point. <laughs> I'm getting there. Get I'm getting that. There. Get that. Yeah. Um, I know. I get it. Let's talk about your fabric line. What? So a lot of the dresses that you do that you show are maybe less casual. Well, maybe casual for the time period, but less casual for now as far as fabrics go. And the prints that you have put together are very sort of lady who lunches, <laughs> lovely florals. Is Was there, what was the, what was the sort of genesis of of your fabric line and the design behind it. Well, yeah, I started, it kind of, it was sort of an evolution from, um, I, st- I had a line with Butterick. I still have a line with Butterick, um, called patterns by Gertie that was started about six years ago. And, um, they've been amazing to work with. And I think at one point, you know, after we'd done a few, um, seasons of patterns together, they said, Hey, have you ever thought of doing a fabric line. And to me, that was one of those things that was like pie in the sky sort of dream. Like I couldn't imagine ever getting to that point where I would be able to design fabric. Um, because I do love vintage prints. I love, I love rose prints. Like there will never be enough rose prints in the world for me. Um, I love vintage novelty prints. Like there were all these sort of vintage fabrics that I wanted that I felt like there, there was a market for that we could reproduce. So for, and to be accessible for people who, for instance, can only shop at Joann's. So anyway, my contacts at Butterick hooked me up with um, a company called Fabric Traditions. Um, and 
we started working together and they sell to Joann's and also to stores like Spotlight in Australia and New Zealand, who I still design for. And they just said like, you know, give us an idea, like what would a Gertie fabric line look like? Mm -hmm. And for me, it was like roses, border prints, um, like forties and fifties style novelty prints, um, little cats wearing bow ties, for instance, that sort of thing. (laughs) Yeah. So we just kind of put together like what would, what would a Gertie line look like? And, um, we, you know, approached Joanne's with it and they were, I don't think they totally got it at first, like, especially with border prints, you know, where the, the print goes across the selvage yeah. and meant to be at the hem of a dress. Yeah. Um, so having like roses growing up from the hem of the dress that like then sort of gradiate into polka dots or something like that, sure. that to them was really scary because they thought like, it's like stripes to them. Like consumers don't really know how to sew with this type of design. But I was really, like, I was really adamant that we needed to try a border print. And the first border print we did, which was, like, a rose border on a, like, dove gray background with white polka dots, um, that was the number one seller. So that was sort of the evolution at that point where they said, oh, this is this is a thing. Like, you know, and at the time it was like, oh, maybe people like Mad Men and that's why this is popular. And it's just, and I think people sort of took the Mad Men era as, like, the era of it being popular on TV, I mean, as like, oh, this is a trend. Vintage is a trend. Yeah. But it, like it hasn't diminished, you know, since then. So, I mean, it was sort of like a trend that like a marketing director could point to and say, okay, this is why we should do rose border prints. But the truth is like people just love them because they're beautiful. <laughs> you know what I mean? And we don't have access to a lot of that stuff anymore. Yeah. And and like many trends i mean there were the 40s had a major resurgence in the 80s and then in the 90s when swingers came out yeah anything that was kind of 50s and flowy was was back in and so then you know of course when madman came in and that was just a small period they went up into the 60s and stopped you know they went to the 70s remember that last 70s episode? i forgot about that yeah so but it's funny because people really if you say Mad Men style, they go straight to that Betty Draper 1950s. Yes, yes, like exactly. That seems to that seems to be what is really ingrained um, culturally in people's lives. So this, what it, I think, what it is, is that it was such a unique period of fashion, uh, and it just it was beautiful, albeit uncomfortable, beautiful. Yes. And so it's it's going to trend cycle probably in perpetuity. Absolutely. Which I totally... is good for your business. So good job. <laughs> Thank you. Let's talk about your books. Uh, so yeah. I have Gertie's Ultimate Dress book. Um, and I personally next want to try the floral surplus dress. Yeah. Surplus, is that right? Surplus. Um, on page 151. So I'll be looking into that. Uh, and your books come with with patterns. Yes. Was that important to you did you ever consider just having them be downloadable was because that makes a big difference i think in people's actual ability to get it done right right i mean i don't know i mean i i worked from i worked with stc craft and melanie Falk from the beginning mm-hmm. and there was never really um even the discussion of having it be downloadable okay. that you know i think they're they're very committed to the package um and not really worrying about cutting costs so much which is great um so it was always like okay this is going to be you know a, a sizable, ambitious book with, you know, the 
patterns and spiral binding and all of that stuff with beautiful illustrations. So, I mean, that was, I think definitely a, that's a perk of working with them is that they're not always thinking of, of ways to cut corners or costs. Yeah, they're actually, I have a book coming out with them in the fall not with STC, but with Abrams. Um, and STC was an imprint before. Um, and they definitely, I mean, I wouldn't, they definitely invest more money in, uh, maker authors than any other pu publisher is right now. For sure. For sure. Definitely. And, and that's not just design of the book, like actually paying authors, which is not happening a lot, at least not in the knitting world, <laughs> but no, in the craft world altogether. Right. Um, right. Which is just, you know, props to Ab Abrams for sure. You have another book coming out that I'm ex actually really excited about because it's might fit into my last minute. <laughs> um, yeah. Tell us about, and I, I, I thought that I had gotten a PDF of it, but I have not seen it yet. So um, tell us about Gertie Sew's Jiffy Dresses, which will be out in the spring of 2019. Yes. So that's my fifth book now, which is kind of hard to believe. That's great. Congratulations. I have sort of built up this collection um, that is focused on, I would say, intermediate to advanced dressmaking. And I have always, like from day one of my blog, I think I've been pretty obsessed with, you know, like no, no dressmaking skill is like too obscure or difficult for me to like obsess about. So that's kind of the approach I had. But then I realized that I had this gap in my library um, of books for people who were just coming to sewing or picking it up again or didn't have, um, you know, weeks to spend making a You need steel. a gateway drug. <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> exactly. <laughs> so we start them with jiffy dresses, um, and then they can evolve into the more advanced dressmaking skills. So what are the, what are the big differences? Please. Does it mean less fitting? Does it, Does mean, it mean less, less more, more flow, I, less tailor? So the idea... And actually, the, the term Jiffy Dresses comes from a line of simplicity patterns right. in, uh, I think, started in the late 40s, went through the 60s and 70s, and the finishing was less time-consuming. So to me, that was the challenge. Um, but the be from the beginning, I always wanted it to have the sort of like signature Gertie glam aesthetic, but be easier and faster to sew. So that was kind of the challenge of this book for me. And a lot of the dresses, um, like Claire McArdle was a major design inspiration for me on this one because she was a, a designer um, in this era who was a big believer in like easy to wear, beautiful fashion accessible fashion. And she had dresses like the popover dress, which you could just sort of throw on, wrap around and be comfortable and like sort of effortlessly stylish. Mm -hmm. So I took a lot of inspiration from her. Um, I, I have a dress in the book called the popover dress inspired by Claire McArdle. And a lot of them don't have, um, zippers. They're like pullover dresses. Um, but they're cinched in some way. So like a popover dress, um, it has a trapeze shape to it, but it's shown worn with like a purchase belt. Or I also have a version of it where it has a la elastic smocking around the waist to give it the vintage silhouette without all of the work of like learning how to do a perfect lap zipper. So it's like, it's more accessible projects with that sort of build in skill from the popover dress, which is like a throw on, um, cinch it with a belt kind of dress up to 
a um, a dress called um, there's a boat neck dress that has darts and a zipper. So you kind of advance in skills over the course of the book. Um, and it's sort of meant to hold your hand a little bit more from people who are intimidated by um, more advanced dressmaking skills um, and to get them to the point where they're ready, like you said, gateway drug for maybe Gertie's ultimate dress book. We'll put a picture of the popover dress on uh, your show notes page, too, so people can check out. People who have been thinking about dipping their toe in the world of Gertie can can check that out for sure. Yeah, the one on the cover is the popover dress. Oh, perfect. Well, that'll be easy then. What is it that you hope that people that follow you and sew with you take away from their experience with your work? For me, I would say it's like, there's like a, there's two parts to what I hope people get out of my patterns and my books and my fabric and all of that. And first is just like the joy of creating and spending time working with your hands and enjoying the process. And for me, that's always been a huge part of it. And also why I have shied away from quick and easy projects in the past, because I'm trying to like slow down a little bit and sort of like take pride in learning a skill that not everyone has and really enjoy the journey of making a dress. But the second thing for me, I would say is how you feel in it. And I think, you know, the, my favorite thing to see is when people feel beautiful or glamorous or they put on, you know, a sort of fit and flare 50 silhouette that they made themselves from one of my patterns. And they just think it's the best thing that they've ever made or worn and feel amazing in it. You know, so it's kind of, it's both of those things. I'm not going to say that sewing isn't about the finished product because I mean, for me, it's been about wanting better, like a better wardrobe from day one, Mm -hmm. but you know, it's both to me. Yeah, you can really see that reflected in all of the finished finished dress pictures that people have posted online. You can just sort of see the joy in their face and how beautiful they feel. And yeah. there, there's nothing like that, knowing that you're putting that out there. It's true. It's true. And like the, I think when I feel the most satisfaction in what I've achieved is when I get to see other people wearing my designs that they've sewn and I can I can tell that they feel really good and beautiful in them. So that to me is like the goal. Well, Gertie, Gretchen, G, it has been so, so <laughs> lovely finally talking to you after all of these years. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Vicki. This has been amazing. I've loved talking to you. For more information on Gretchen Hirsch, her books and patterns, go to her show notes page at vickihowell.com slash craftish. All right, now it's time for what I'm crafting to this week, a special segment brought to you by Penguin Random House Audio. So on TV, I'm a little late to the uh, to the binging table for this one, but I have been obsessively watching for the last week Outlander, uh, which is a show on stars. They're already through the fourth season. I am more than halfway through the second season just in the last week it is so good if you like period pieces at all if you like drama a little bit of intrigue and an amazing scottish brogue this one is for you so that's outlander on stars so audiobooks i've been talking for the past couple weeks about 
listening to the new Beastie Boys book by Michael Diamond and Adam Horowitz, and, and I am still doing that. Tons of amazing narrators. It's like a who's who's of Hollywood. Um, but this was one. Of, this week there was one of those kind of weird things that seems to happen to me quite a lot, actually, where my different worlds meld together. So I'm listening to this book, you know, courtesy of Penguin Random House Audio. At the same time, I'm also promoting the fact that I'm hosting the authors, the official South by Southwest authors meetup for um, the festival that's coming up next month. So then yesterday, I get an email, you know, just the regular South by emails, and it says that Adam Horowitz and Michael Diamond are now booked as keynote speakers at South by. It just felt like all of the worlds melding together in the best possible way. So. The other book that I've just downloaded is called Sadness, Love, Openness, The Buddhist Path of Joy. It's by Chakya Niyama Rinpoche, and it's narrated by Richard Gere. It's just about a three-hour listen, which um, I like bite-sized listens every once in a while. I also like to do a little spiritual tune-up every once in a while as well, so I feel like this is going to fill both of those buckets, so I'm looking forward to that. So again, that's called Sadness, Love, Openness, and you can find that um, really anywhere that you get your audiobooks from. All right, you can also check that title out, the Beastie Boys title out, and really, I mean, most of the great audiobooks that are out there are put out by this company. So if you just go to tryaudiobooks.com, you can check out those titles and give them a listen. All right, if you liked this episode, please share it with a friend or post a rating and review. It's really easy to do now in Apple Podcasts. You can do it right from your phone. Craftish is a Campbell production. It is produced by me in Austin, Texas, and mixed and edited by Dave Campbell. Music is provided by our friends over at Explosions in the Sky, who are celebrating their 20th anniversary this year. So happy anniversary, Explosions. Also, if you are a knitter or crocheter or yarn purveyor of any form, Yarn Yay subscription boxes, those, that's a business that I own, the February box is now officially on sale. This month, we only had a few spots open up. I have less than 50 boxes available now as of the recording of this podcast on February 14th. So if you are at all interested in joining us, um, it's a community. We all hang out. We make things together. And then you get these delights delivered to your house. Please just go to yarnyay.com. All right. Check your feed out next Thursday for another episode of the Crafters Podcast. Thank you for listening this week. And until next time, please take a little time to fill that creative well for yourself. Breathe in, craft out.